1: This time on Vet Story.
0: If you could visualize that type of friction that I went through in the war-torn streets of, of Ramadi, this you know sprawling city of over three hundred thousand people with the Euphrates River cutting through it, um, you know bullets just rubbled to the ground. The whole city's covered in a gray film of dust from explosions and fighting and. Battling street to street and seeing some of the bloodiest, worst things of humanity, all doing it in a city full of people. These amazing Marines that we fought with, the the people in Iraq that supported us, our interpreters who helped us speak the language, and our amazing Gold Star families. Oh my god, friction. Shot in the chest by a sniper. Literally, Shanghai is like five helicopters, three in the morning, the deadliest city on the face of the planet. To
1: get back to his boys. There were times I'd get off this train after reading some scenes, and man, I'm walking off that train. Like, what are you looking at?
0: Listeners, he's strutting like a rooster in his chair right now. I'm going on a victory lap. (laughs) man i'm getting like some comedy and i'm getting some therapy i'm really in for like a full pod this this is gonna be great yeah this
1: is a vet story is no a good
0: podcast it's not just another war story
1: echo and ramadi the first-hand story of u.s marines in
0: iraq's deadliest city it is the power of human connection
1: Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs, and I really think you're going to love this week's podcast and this week's guest.
0: Major Scott Husing, United States Marine Corps, retired, best-selling author, Echo (laughs) and Ramadi. All
1: right, Scott, welcome to Vet Story.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on the program. Good to be here, Phil.
1: As I told you multiple times, I turned through this book in about, I don't know, two weeks. I probably could have done it if I could have just sat down on the beach in like 72 hours. But, you know, i trying to fit it into my life and the commute. But every day on the train, I would read this because I commute in and out of the mm-hmm. suburbs to Washington, D.C. on the subway train. And there were times I'd get off this train after reading some scenes and, man, I'm walking off that train like. <laughs> What are you looking at,
0: listeners? He's strutting like a rooster in his chair right now. So that's like that's what's going on right now. Like he's a badass. Like so that's chest, happened. That's happened.
1: Total chest puffed out. <laughs> just felt badass. Like what are you looking at? What are you looking at? I'll f- you up. I swear to God, I will. Look, don't look at me. And I, I felt I felt tough. And as a guy that was in the Navy, you know, we had this interesting relationship with the Marine Corps, and uh, we teased the f- out of you guys. Which I'll still do.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean Yeah, I'd expect nothing less. You'll lose, but you know, you can try.
1: <laughs> Crayons and you know, the <laughs> joke goes on and on about how they taste. But uh just a thrilling read. Echo and Ramadi, the first hand story of US Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. And it's biographical, it's spiritual. It's as I've shared it with some of the civilians that I work with, it it's almost kind of a management training book because you talk about what it's like to be a marine corps officer which yeah. when i first read your bio i was like officer great because okay. <laughs> i was in the navy right and like the guys that flew planes just the, you know they were cooler than i yeah. was and i always knew it and they always knew it and they always let me know it that they were just you know lieutenant commanders that can fly an f18 and i'm just a you know i'm just that guy with the camera <laughs> your management training style in this book really comes through i got to ask as I've done all the talking here.
0: <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> it's always better if there's more you less me. Like that's your philosophy. That's what he told me when I came in the studio. He's like, "Look, just sit there and listen to me. I'm a really great host. You'll learn a lot from me. This is going to be awesome for you." Just just I'll just plug your book and then just listen to me. <laughs>
1: it's pretty much true. <laughs> Given all that I've said, why did you write this book?
0: That's a that's a great question and I always respond by saying, "Why was it important for me to tell this story?" Because you're right; it's not just a book. Uh, you know, it's a story, and it's a story about people, and it's not just about the Marines and the sailors and the soldiers and the fighting and the friction and the explosions and all that sexy stuff that's normally romanticized on TV and uh, you know, oftentimes misportrayed. It's really about people. And again, when you said it was spiritual, you're the first person that's ever said it was spiritual because that's important to me because whenever I speak about my experiences to large audiences or talk about the book, I always say that the core message is the power of human connection because it really is about the people, these amazing Marines that we fought with, the, the people in Iraq that supported us, our interpreters who helped us speak the language, our families who we left behind. 5,000 miles away as we fought for months and months and months on end. And our amazing Gold Star families who Mm -hmm. lost sons and daughters and they're still there for us. So it is, it's not just another war story. It is so many things. And from a leadership perspective, uh, you know, as an officer, as a Mustang officer for the record, listeners, I was prior enlisted, uh, (laughs) then switched over to the dark side. But there are a lot of great components of leadership Are rife throughout the book
1: and you don't have to read very far into the book before you can hear some of those components of leadership page 13 the chapter entitled lieutenants in this chapter he talks about meeting the young lieutenants that will eventually join him in Ramadi while they're still at school going through the grueling infantry officer course and he writes, all infantry lieutenants have received phenomenal training and gone through rigorous mental preparation before they enter the operational forces. What they tend to lack is a fundamental understanding of the magnitude of their responsibilities that only combat can prove to cure. My lieutenants were keenly aware they lacked experience, but tried to make up for it by bulldozing through the friction when it presented tough decisions. I doubt any one of them would admit it, but this amateurish mindset was wholly absent from the essence of what it meant to lead Marines.
0: And it's not just leadership, it's team building, overcoming adversity, and again, that power of human connection, I think, that really brings it all together.
1: I wanna begin with the start of the book. You open this book with arguably one of the toughest things anybody has to do ever. And that's inform someone that their loved one has passed. Mm -hmm. You open the book with calling Dustin Libby's mom. Yeah. As the phone rang, My throat tightened from nerves as a hundred thoughts of how this speech was going to sound ran through my head. I thought for sure she wouldn't even want to talk to me. I had no idea what to say to a mother who had just lost her son.
0: The reason it's the first chapter is I think that's where the, the story began was to honor the sacrifices and the spirit of my Marines and the soldiers and the families. And I think that came out first. I mean, it weighed on me, I think Mm -hmm. for, you know, people often ask before I answer the question is, you know, how long did it take you to write a book? Well, it took 11 years because had I written it in 2007 or 2008, when I came back, the story would not be the same because it took almost a decade for my Marines and the families to process all that Mm -hmm. and share it. So, and it's not some catharsis for me where I, you know, I, I wrote, typed in the end and I was like, oh, God, I'm healed. That didn't happen. Right, but right. writing that chapter about the loss of Corporal Dustin Libby, who we lost on December 6, 2006, I think was important. And I was very honored to have his mom and his dad, Judd, and his brother, Chris, allow me to share that story. And, you know, that's a tough thing as a writer, as a Marine, as a commander. I don't care what, what your vocation is, to ask a family member, say, hey, could I tell that story? And by the way, it's going to be printed in you know 50,000 copies and it's going to be on bookshelves. I'm going to talk about it. But they all said yes. Mm-hmm. They all said, yeah, you, you have to tell the story and you have to be the voice. That's how they're remembered because they can't talk for themselves anymore. But to make that phone call, I mean, literally hours before, Dustin, who was one of our squad leaders in the company, of over 250 Marines uh, you know, he, he, he stood on that rooftop during a five hour grueling firefight, which really redefined what we knew as fighting in the city. It was a well coordinated complex attack against mm-hmm. multiple army and Marine positions. And he was, he was struck by a bullet and we, we medevaced him that night. And uh, you know, that's, that whole experience was tough. And it wasn't until I found a a lull in the fighting where I was able to, you know, hop on my satellite phone and actually call his mom and talk to his dad back in Castle uh, Hill, Maine and, you know, tell them some of the, you know, details of what happened, how brave he was. And I, I think that was important. And it most certainly impacted Jenny because she wrote me that letter, which she again, allowed me to print in the book. And,
1: yeah, very cool touch. I'll say that. What is it? Four the or five pi- pages into the first chapter, you've actually got a picture or a copy the of the The only picture letter. in the book. Yeah.
0: It's, it's the only picture in the book. People are like, why aren't there any pictures? I'm like, because there's no pictures needed. But the only one is oh, oh, that letter from Ginny.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I liked it, you opening that way, because by the time I got done, I was like, wow, this has already happened, and it's chapter one. I got to find out more about how this happened who Libby was, who your whole platoon was, who, who's in this story. You finish that chapter and you're like, wow, this is about ready to get great. Uh, Let's uh, move on to the next part, which I thought equally epic. And this is where management training I had mentioned kind of comes in. I did a voiceover. I did a little production on one of the quotes from the book. I took some liberties with your voice. I'd only heard you on the phone, so you know this isn't going to be exact.
0: Was it Sam Elliott? But I my (laughs) dude, if I could have had Sam Elliott read this. have done Sam Elliott. Ah,
1: Christ, (laughs) Sam! When you hear this, bro, call me (laughs) because I got a lot of voice work for you. But uh, no, this is this is cool. I, I say it's management because this is the speech, and I refer to this in reading it. I think it comes chapter two, but this is the speech you give the first time you walk in front of all those Marines as the company commander. This is the first time in combat for most of you. You will have to fire your weapon at the enemy. You will have to kill. I don't expect this will be easy for anyone. It shouldn't be. But know this, I am ordering you to kill. You will kill. And when this is all over, it will be my responsibility. It will be my burden to carry because I am ordering you to do it. We are Marines. We follow orders. You'll kill the enemy, but you will leave this place without regret. And we will win. Is that understood? I mean, when I told you I see a movie in this every time I read a new page, I was like, that speech raised the hairs in the back of my neck. Was that something that the Marine Corps teaches you to give, or is that your kind of unique sort of mentoring style or your unique management
0: style? Well, nothing's original. And I'm sure that that was a compilation of all the great advice from all the great leaders that I was fortunate to have throughout my career. Absolutely not exclusive to me. Yeah, I absolutely said that. And you know th- that that was a great job, by the way. Um, I don't know how Dave Morant said it. Um, and this is a true confession: is um, I did with Pete Turner, who runs he does Break It Down show. Okay. So he always wants me to do a true confession. I go, I've never listened to the book on audio, but I know Dave, who's a New York actor, but I didn't I didn't hear him say that. But you did a great job. Thanks, man. But the preface to that, as you know, is. I had first Sergeant Foster, Tom Foster, say, hey, get them all outside and you talk to the boys. Because as a leader, they need to hear it from the boss, right? They, uh, you know, straight from the lips. They don't always want it, you know, uh, to be blasted by the boss every single day. But there's important things like that passage that they needed to hear. But they were also under the assumption it was going to be a big photo op. So the Marines were complaining and moaning, and, right, right. And, and, which, you know, they would, you know, if they're not doing that, something's really wrong. But I, I think it was important to to tell them that. And, you know, as as we go in in that, in that that piece, I was, I think, validated by those, you know, 40 or 50, you know, seasoned vets who had fought 18 months earlier in the first Battle of Ramadi in 2004, you know, and I say seasoned vets, I'm talking about 22-year-old sergeants. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Still 20-year-old carpor- corporals. And those were the guys that, really made the difference as we turned the tide of that war day in and day out it was through their leadership that really allowed us to fight and win and survive and and be as effective as we were on the battlefield it was those young guys that did it
1: i loved how you were able to lift that guilt and say this is on me and, and you will leave here and it's going to be OK. You will leave here and I will absorb all this for you. You will have no regrets. And I think even in a non-lethal, non-war zone area, it's important for a boss to tell their employee, you will come here, you will work, you will do a good job. But I, I got you.
0: I'm the one who's ultimately responsible, and anywhere in the boardroom or on the battlefield. Yeah, and I don't care who you read about leadership—Klauswitz or Covey. Yeah, all those tenets of leadership uh, apply, and obviously they're under some pretty extreme circumstances. These young guys are making these decisions. I, I think that's what's unique too. Is I always like to emphasize that fact: how young these guys were. Right. I mean, so very young to be making such life and death decisions. Split second timing, and having to make that decision to take another human life mm. is, um, you know, it, it as I as I always say, you know, it's not a natural act. It's it, you know, humans create war, um, and these young men and women that that are ordered to do these things and perform these superhuman acts in, in the face of great danger, um, they do it phenomenally, and I've, I've always been impressed by the Marines, but I was never more impressed by the way that my guys took care of each other day in and day out and the way they took care of me. I mean, they still do Phil. I mean, they still, you know, call and they still ask for letters of recommendation because I think they still view me as their leader. And I certainly still feel a responsibility to lead my commission. My warrants don't have an expiration date on the wall, man. It, It, leadership isn't a nine to five job you either lead or you do not lead and there's no such thing as combat leadership just leadership and if you don't subscribe to that and you're not committed to that I I think it's all pointless Mm -hmm. and I think that you know real leaders again they know all those leadership skills and traits you know that were taught but again The ones that aren't written on the walls, remember on the the bulkheads of the ship, you'd see like, just JJ did tie buckle, and justice, judgment, decisiveness. But there's also other words in there that great leaders know to read in between the lines, like love and compassion and caring and kindness. Those are the ones that they don't teach us in the textbooks professional warriors attend in those schoolhouses. Mm. But if you can see those and you can read those, knowing when it's all right to you know be hard on the guys when they need it and when you need to put your arm around them pop them out i mean i think that's what most great leaders understand is is that balance
1: we talk a little bit about danger and some of the dangers these young guys faced uh i liked the literary device you used friction When stuff was going down, uh, several times you are uh, describing a Humvee going down a war-torn street, buildings riddled with bullets and half bombed out, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're getting rained on by bullets from a position you can't identify. But then you got to use the comms, and you it doesn't
0: work. I'm surprised this microphone is working right now. I like literally my whole life.
1: Friction <laughs> always is your enemy. It is. I got to ask, is it something you still use in your life today? In the back of your mind, in other words. You're not in a war zone. We're not taking on, you know, fire. We're not being shot at by enemies. But you're driving onto the highway. You're running a little bit late. Traffic. Boom. Friction. You go to get the grocery cart and you pick the one with the damn wheel that doesn't work. And you, you know, run into your own truck. Bam. Friction. Does that use of that term friction, does that help slow the game down in your mind? Or do you continually Mm. employ it each week of your life?
0: I think probably that's a great point. Man, I'm getting like some comedy. I came in the I came in the studio here there's like some comedy. We're all we're all jacked up with the crew out in the set. Now I'm getting some therapy <laughs> and like some entertainment. This is like a really I'm really in for like a full pod. Dude, this, this is going to be great. A, I yeah. This
1: is a Vet Story is no shit <laughs> yes. s- a good podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's the what do they call it? uh full Monty. I think the that friction is always present. Um I, I don't think about it at the forefront of my mind and again I you know, I think it's really the absence of that high level of friction that takes adjusting when you when you live through all of that and you deal with it on a continual basis because you can't really replicate that mm. but but you know what that you just brought up a great point too about the, the word friction, which again is sometimes it's an entire paragraph in the book. It's just Oh, my God, friction, that indescribable pressure that you just can't plan for. You have to battle through and understand. But as you do, as a leader, you're able to identify those, those points of friction two, three, four, or five steps ahead. And that's also what great leaders have to do is forecast that friction, not so you don't slip and fall on your ass, but so you protect those that you're leading. And I think friction is—you're right—prevalent and it's present in everything we do in life. And again, if you're in any type of leadership position, being able to understand that—that that if you could visualize that type of friction that I went through in the war-torn streets of, of Ramadi, this you know sprawling city of over three hundred thousand people with the Euphrates River cutting through it, um, you know bullets just rubbled to the ground, the whole city's covered in a gray film of dust from explosions and fighting and battling street to street and seeing some of the bloodiest, worst things of humanity, all doing it in a city full of people. And then mm. understanding your daily life, if you are dealing with that type of friction, it can be overcome. Most certainly, if we were able to overcome it at our team level, platoon, company, task force yeah, at yeah. any level, it's going to be present, but you can't overcome it.
1: Amazing. And I think maybe just saying the word helped me as I read, <clears throat> as you stopped down, each time something bad happened, you know, the comms didn't work, the gun jammed, you you didn't have, you know, support firing on the enemy. Friction. 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 Just saying it, recognizing that this problem exists and I got to adapt and overcome was calming to me as the reader. Hmm. Because you think for a second Christ, they're going to get killed right here. This is where the book ends. and and friction. And you just set it and moved on Um, let's get to combat. This is something that like, I look, I typically don't like asking warfighters about it because, as I mentioned at the top of this, you know, war porn's not my thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to glorify it because it sucks. I mean, it wasn't, you know. There is is nothing
0: glamorous about it. Uh, Hollywood makes it look kind
1: of wrong. You wrote about some images that are tough to define. I mean, uh, I'll just give some examples here. Um, Fighting on rooftops. Walking patrols that turned into late-night gunfights. I can't get in touch with this tank, so I'm going to run out. I'm going to jump on the tank. I'm going to bang on the hatch. Bing, 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 bing. Hearing the bullets ping the side of the tank. Even grazing your helmet. I got to wonder... In writing all those things, did the act of doing it freak you the hell out or was it oddly cathartic?
0: I didn't have this catharsis. I didn't write the end or I'd write a chapter and be like, oh, God, I feel so much more healed by sharing my, uh, you know, both wins and losses. And again, when you write those types of stories after 10 years, here's the most important part as a Marine. Or soldier or anyone in the military. Is it's gotta be accurate. Because if if I wrote something or I did an interview and then and then it wasn't, you know, ninety-five percent accurate, right? They will eat you for breakfast. And <laughs> so I would go back and I would call guys and be like, Hey, you remember that day we were fighting the Malab and the tanks? Or like, which direction were they pointed? And you remember when I had to climb up like remember when they lost Lieutenant Somerville and we couldn't find him? Like, was that true? Did that really happen, or was that like The friction just, you know, blinding me at that day as we're trying to battle out of, like, one of the worst hoods in Ramadi. Um, But so you validate it, and when you write about it, I think, you know, those stories are just little pieces that are really emblematic of what most guys went through. Mm. And so you're seeing it from Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, but you got to remember, too, in the city of Ramadi, we were surrounded by... Uh, Army units First Brigade Combat Team Multiple Task Force And Army units Or Army Brothers That we fought right. under I mean I worked for the Army And I love those guys And I love my Army tankers And I know we got Army tankers Sitting on the office Yeah Jake Jake, Jake Yeah sure. <laughs> Yeah he's a tanker I love those guys And uh, I'll tell you a quick tank story If you want to hear it No so please do We got We were busting it up one night And uh, we You know In a firefight And then the vehicles take off so it's like three in the morning uh you know and i said hey where where is the convoy where's lieutenant Somerville? i think he was supposed to drive me back to the combat outpost or Corregidor." and i said oh he took off sir he's gone I said, so i'm stuck so i'm either sleeping here i'm gonna miss miss my daily brief with colonel ferry the next day and we're <laughs> fighting and all of a sudden uh the second lieutenant in the army who ran a section of the tanks his name is jared and jared the tanker from the army if you're listening I've been dying to find out where this guy is to this day. I want to track him down. But he says, hey, sir, so excited. I, my, my, my tank's outside. You, you want to ride in the tank? I'll put you in the tank. I'll get you to ride the He's like so excited, like squirrel. You know, he's like, oh, just constantly. So he brings me out. He goes, sit in the tank commander's hatch. So I'm in the hatch. It's 3 in the morning. It's freezing cold in Ramadi. Everyone thinks Iraq is like this balmy desert. No. Yeah, right, fr- right. The coldest I've ever been. And I grew up in Chicago. So I'm cruising down uh, Route Michigan, three in the morning, the deadliest city on the face of the planet in an M1 Abrams tank. I tell you, there's not many things that impress me, but I felt pretty manly <laughs> riding through that tank. And uh, that lieutenant could not have been happier to give his commander you know, a ride home in the tank that night. So, oh, that's cool, yeah. man. Yeah, better than any Uber, definitely.
1: Dude, and again, I can only imagine. And that's why I like bringing some of this up, because it's not all dark and devastation. Uh, These moments that we have in reading this just made me... Like, that scene you just described, if I were to read that, I'd have got off the train that day been like, yeah. (laughs) I know it's just a Nissan Frontier, but in my mind, this thing's an M1 Abrams tank. And you Prius are in my (laughs) way. I mean, just... We love that actually. If anyone
0: in D.C. sees Phil driving around in his Nissan with his head out the sunroof, you'll know what he's thinking about. <laughs>
1: totally, dude. That is,
0: <laughs> honey, take the wheel. I'm gonna stick my head out of the sunroof.
1: <laughs> I'm going
0: on a victory lap.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you recommend for other vets listening that they maybe go ahead and write a journal?
0: Absolutely. You, you gotta you gotta find your medium that okay. that you like. Yours is obviously talking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's effective. I mean, you get paid for it, so uh, and you don't have to get paid for it to have some sort of portal or outlet. And I and I think when I wrote the book, that's really what I wanted it to be is to to serve as this this portal for for others to heal, not necessarily myself. And maybe, maybe again, that's just because I love to stay connected and feel like I'm leading. But whatever you do in life, uh, you got to love it. Right. You got to be passionate about it. And When you lock yourself in a room for a year and you hammer out what you think is going to be a great best-selling book, at the end of that process, you, I love sharing that part of it. Is is just do it. Right. Book, books don't write themselves, but not everything's a book either, Phil. Sometimes it's a podcast. Right. Sometimes it's a blog, or maybe you're writing a long story or an expose. So just find what works and that's what's cool too about
1: or a painting even I mean it could just be crazy ass artwork yeah it could
0: be fine art anything and I think there's a lot of guys that are very fortunate they they work through whatever issues they're dealing with through all these great what I call like boutique 501c's that you know maybe it's horseback riding maybe it's painting maybe it's a writing class but they've got so many options today and this really amazing network and again that that power of human connection that right, is right. really supporting our vet community, like this show, yeah, I yeah mean, entire yeah. studio. Like for the listeners who don't know, it's like this is a really nice studio. I've done some shows where <laughs> it's like a broom closet and a microphone. That they dump some money into this. The CBS Radio is really taking care of vets. So and
1: now Intercom Radio, thank you. Intercom very
0: much. Radio, thank you. Yes, uh, always like to give the plugs, but
1: no, but I'm picking up what you're yeah. putting down. It's not just maybe journaling or painting or horseback riding, but it is something. What it is not is sitting on a couch with a bottle of Jack Daniels, watching some reruns, middle of the day, drunk off your ass, taking some pills, wondering why that you light paper. Exactly. One of the cool things I thought about reading this book is even in the midst of a combat scene or something, we can be talking about a person, and immediately when you introduce the character, we will get to hear a little bit more about them. Lance Corporal Trenton Drew Tex Sturrock was in the turret of Somerville's lead vehicle manning the 50 caliber machine gun. He was from Woodlands, Texas. There was nothing original about his nickname, other than the fact that he acquired it after getting the state flag of Texas tattooed across his left shoulder and back. He was 19 when he enlisted in the Marines and would celebrate his 20th birthday in Iraq. Tex spoke with a smooth southern drawl and exuded confidence. He had a gregarious personality. It's allowed him to bond with the men in Echo Company. He was undeniably one of Echo's
0: many large personalities. Yeah.
1: It's not just like name- Battlefield war scene name. Battlefield war scene.
0: It's about people.
1: Who were some yeah. of your favorite? I mean, not 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 favorite people because you can't pick a favorite person. But I mean, who are some of the favorite characters that you, that uh, you described? Just off the top of your head, like where's? Well,
0: our- you know, I talked to some of the Marines, um, and again, you have to make sure the stories are right, or they will roast you. Um, oh yeah, Marines are unrelentless. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and you know, there, some of them said, "Well, hey sir, you know, why don't you tell this story?" Or you know, you didn't talk about this person, and I said, "Look." Yeah, if I wrote about everything, no one would ever read the book. So you only got like three hundred pages, plus or minus. So a
1: thousand pages long. Yeah. So
0: again, those guys like you know Tex and Espo and Tom Foster and uh, some of the other great Marines and great characters. And and trust me, they weren't all like super stellar performers. You know, they all their their faults, just like everyone. Right. But they're again emblematic of all of the guys that I fought with in Echo Company. And all the soldiers that we fought alongside. But yeah, there were some funny stories that came through. And let's talk about Espo. Okay. Uh, okay. Gun- Gunnery Sergeant John and then Espinosa now. He's still on active duty. Um, and when I called him, I picked up the phone. I'm sitting in my office. And again, he wasn't a real chatty Kathy. I don't think he's forecasting a. A radio career in his retirement, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I called him and I told him what was going on and, you know, I said, Hey, I really want to write about this, this uh, story. when I finally shut up and just let him talk, I was on my keyboard. Do you got some keyboard sound effects? I just typed and Espo was rattling off that great story about him being shot in the chest by a sniper medevaced out we think he's going back to his family and then lo and behold he literally shanghai like five helicopters to get back to his boys to get back to the men he leads yeah because that's where he felt he belonged all of this transpires unbeknownst to me i had no idea that any of this was even happening because i was here at that point of most friction while my guys were being medevaced and taken care of and you just kind of have blind faith in the system that that's what's going to happen then he shows up.
1: Now, I forget in the book, who was it that, that, that tore him a new one for basically hitchhiking his way back to a war zone after being <laughs> shot in the chest when he should be on First his way sergeant, back to Walter Reed?
0: Yeah, 1st Sergeant Tom Foster, our <laughs> senior enlisted. Uh, I love Tom. Uh, again, he's still on active duty. He's a sergeant major now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and, and to get Tom Riled was uh, – you kind of really had to cross the line because he wasn't right. a real yeller by any means, but – uh
1: goes to show exactly what you guys are instead of being you know padded with gauze and treated well by a you know a professional nurse or something you know you guys want to like get out shot
0: of- in the chest by an eight millimeter sniper round like that you know it's like the tip of a crayon for those that don't know right in in has a gash in his chest and you're like hey great i'm out of here i get to leave the war zone right. and then you like sneak out of the hospital and go back to your unit i mean who is who were all of those characters around that transit ride from Balad Hospital back to the deadly city of Ramadi? Like, hey, man, come on. Just hop on the helicopter. We won't tell anybody. He's like, thanks, brother. Like all of those connecting points that allowed him to do that. because. Right. As you know, you can't just like walk up to the flight deck of the stands and be like, yeah, I'm going to hop on the Cod and uh, I'm going to go back to Bahrain. If you guys could just shoot me like they're like negative. Get out of here. <laughs> go back yeah. down to your birthing. <laughs> <laughs> Sober up. So I don't know. He had, He's a real charismatic guy. And uh, I think Must probably get. through his force of personality, just... Uh, just amazing
1: i'm telling you at the red carpet of this movie i want to have a beer with that guy and i want to remind him what a nut job he is for wanting to go back to a war zone i thought that was really cool how you were able to introduce us to the interpreters who are critical to achieving these missions because obviously you know we're not Iraqis we don't speak that language we had to go over there we had to find connections to get us in and help us get our message across to the people who were invariably caught in the crossfire you told really cool backstories about them and I love the one guy that gets sick And he's laying on the ground. And they're like. Thank you for telling that story.
0: I've never shared this. This is so hilarious. Okay,
1: so one of the interpreters, who we're gonna get into in a second, um is falls sick in the middle, like in the middle of this building, this bombed-out building you guys are using as like an operational, Mm -hmm. you know, headquarters, and he's laying on the ground and somebody's like, hey. Hey, Major. You know our guy Jake's Jake. not doing too well. Yeah, Jake. And and you come to look through his bag and realize he's packing like a twelve pack of these little cans of eggnog. No, no,
0: and big cans of eggnog, like the ones yeah. that they weren't little cans of Rip It, like we were talking about earlier. It's like these were big, quart sized cans of eggnog, which weighed like a pound and a half a piece. <laughs> so-
1: so in the middle of the heat or whatever, he's got to carry 20 extra pounds dedicated just to these bottles of eggnog. And you ask him, what the hell's your problem? What the hell are you doing with all this? Yeah. And, and oh, he's like,
0: oh, P.S., you're supposed to be drinking water to hydrate. This dude's drinking. down in eggnog.
1: And he says, I just love the eggnog. Yeah.
0: The, it's the, Sir, I love this eggnog. It's very good. Very. Sir, I just like the taste. Because it was Christmas in Ramadi. And so we go to the dining facility and he'd obviously like raided, you know, the eggnog stand and, or I don't know where, but anyway, yeah, he, he, he's got his whole backpack full of these metal cans of Borden's eggnog. (laughs) It's, yeah, just and ridiculous. his
1: stomach cramping up, he's dehydrated. Yeah, yeah.
0: He's going he, he's going uh, you know, tits up on me at that point. And uh <laughs> I will
1: never yeah. look at eggnog the same way. But we, here's the even funnier part. Those of us that are Americans, I and I don't think I speak for everybody, but the vast majority of us, I don't even think we really like eggnog. It's <laughs> unless it's got brandy in it, that <laughs> is nasty. I
0: not you, something I would put in my camel back to hydrate. No. You know, like, fill it up with pancake batter. Let's uh go on a hike and uh, no. no
1: reminds me of that sea in Anchorman, you know, when Ron Burgundy's walking down the hot streets of San Diego and he's chugging milk and he's like, milk
0: was a bad choice. That's the best. idiot. Best analogy. Okay,
1: these Terps, uh, as you explained, Big Sam, Ford, the story that introduces us to them was their life. They went back home after meeting kind of secretly on the base to take the test. And I say secretly because if you were seen walking on and off Whereas at the green zone in Baghdad or Mm -hmm. whatever, if you were seen walking on and off there as if you're working with the Americans, people in your neighborhood would most likely try to kill you, right? So these guys, at risk of their own life, go and take this test, come off the base, and then they realize they're going to make this decision to join you guys. And you detail how their lives were almost at risk the very night the one guy goes back to have one last night with his family. And his girlfriend, and say goodbye. And I'm a little rusty on details, but it was something to the effect of like the Taliban or whatever, like left a note at his house saying yeah, we're going to kill of, you. The insurgents
0: or- left a note, and uh, they'd made the decision. And again, it's important to note these are 18 year old kids that um, I, I say were akin to the Patriots of our American Revolution that took up arms to to kick out the invaders and you know, these people had destroyed their homes and burned out their cars. And, uh, so they, they decided to join and, and help us speak the language and they wanted to be with the Marines. But yeah, they, they came home, uh, after signing their contracts, telling their folks, you know, what was going to happen. And someone left a note said, you know, you know, die infidels for supporting the Americans. And they left a Mm. bullet in the envelope. And, and at that point, um, you know, there was, uh, Pretty intense scene one night where where they got th- they thought this is it like we got found out and the green zone isn't again like a camp it's an area of the city right, right. so it, and, and green zone is a doctrinal term but it doesn't necessarily mean safe zone because trust me they were like parking cartouche rockets into the green zone and you know they'd shoot AKs and you know solder cities right next door but so yeah they had a rough upbringing and to do what they did. You know, Big Sam and Ford, who I'm proud to call American citizens now, um, because mm. they're, you know, just another example of success stories. And there's a lot of other terps that came back over here, and we owe them a huge debt of gratitude because I attribute a lot of my success and, and really my life that I, I really placed in their hands, these, these young kids that did so much for us. And, uh, you know, even to this day, uh, Big Sam, who I write about in the book, I just posted such a great video on my Facebook page. He went back last month to Iraq to visit his parents in Baghdad for the first time in 11 years. And so he drives three hours to Ramadi with the copy of the book. And he's wearing a t-shirt that says, save the brave, our foundation with an American flag on it in his car, driving through, you know, and the, This needs to be understood. ISIS is still in Iraq. They are still in Syria. So this is a ballsy move, but he did it because I think he loves obviously being a part of the book, but he's also loyal to Echo Company. It hasn't ever died out and you know, he was at my retirement in 2013 when he flew in from Chicago and you know, these, we're just connected to him like our own brothers. And again, they're all grown up now. They're like 31, 32 years old, you know. Your kids again, yeah. another one of your I kids. I love them. They grow up so fast. It's
1: Still. amazing to think because I look at the experience of, you know, our conflict over there, I look at the wars that we've been, you know, ongoing for 16, 17 years. And I think to the like a lot of the Americans that have never been over there, you know, we look at the Terps, we look at some of them and we're like, "I one, could you trust them to really be on your side and not just every time they knocked on a door saying in Mm -hmm. a language you don't understand I'm with these Americans they're going to kill me if you don't like you know let them in so hide all your stuff.
0: Some people thought that there was you know I was a Terp lover and then there's I'm sure there were some that had these uh, unfounded reservations but you know these guys work for companies and they vet them they make sure they have security clearances and again you know if you're a smart enough guy you can figure out if somebody, you know, your BS meter at at least at my age, at thirty five as a captain, was you know pretty finely calibrated. Uh, sure, sure. So if you got a guy working for you, and I don't care what he, what nationality he is, what culture comes from, you can sense BS, and you you could sense body language, and and which is ninety percent of everything. So if they were doing that, we would have been pretty we would have tuned picked up on it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But
1: and to that now in the aftermath. I don't why is it we see the these cities then get toppled again by the next group that comes in in our absence
0: Those stories about sacrifice that the that the Iraqis make uh, you know they're kind peace loving people and ISIS or any radical islamic faction is not representative of that culture it's just not but the problem has been, and we'll just kind of shift gears here to little talk a little politics is because I've written op-eds about this yeah, and I've got man. my own opinions, which I'm free to share now since I'm not on active duty. Um, but, you know, none of us sit around and lament about, oh, man, if we don't plant a flag here, you know, proverbially speaking, uh, we're going to be back in 10 years. And sure enough, we didn't need a crystal ball to figure that out. We didn't establish a, a base. We, we didn't establish a Ford presence. And... Ten years later, where were we? Iraq, mm-hmm. Ramadi, ISIS. That's where they're setting up camp. They're like, "Yep, capital of Al Province. We're gonna pitch our tent here, and then we're gonna run rough shot on the city." And it's game on because the Americans are taking off. And we weren't good students of our history. Mm. We, you know, like we were in the Pacific Theater. You know, we stayed in Okinawa. We stayed in, uh, you know, Japan in the European Theater. We stayed in. Germany, we you know we we established a footprint, and it's not necessarily to be occupiers. It's just being a forward force, having that show of force. Just like as a carrier guy, you know, it's like when that big honking boat with five thousand sailors is cruising around. People don't want to screw up. They're like, "Eh, yeah, that thing. I don't know if any of your viewers have never seen an aircraft carrier or like the carrier strike group. Oh, like you sit, but from sea. Or seeing it from land and you see it like looming on the horizon, you're like, holy crap, that is a lot of ass whoop sitting in those tin cans on the sea. It right. looks awesome, it's super impressive. So, we didn't learn those lessons. And again, we're still in Iraq, we're still in Afghanistan, we still have people fighting in those countries. And until we figure it out, and I, you know, I, I threw this out on another show, I was reaching along. Because I think it's important industrially and from our economic and industrial leaders to show them what right looks like. Because we're dumping money into this place. Right, right. I just threw an op ed out kind of blasting former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson because he's writing a check for three billion with a B to the country of Iraq who's asking for eighty billion bucks to rebuild their country. And I said, No way. We, we've spent enough money, enough time, and they just don't have a great track record of being good stewards of our cash. So enough sending people over, enough spilling blood, enough writing checks. They got to figure it out. But if we really want to do it right and not be back there in another 10 years, let's show them what right looks like. And it doesn't have to be yeah. the American way, but uh, the right way.
1: That's a great phrase show them what right looks like. Yeah, and
0: I I wrote an article right then, when I left Iraq about Walmart. I'm like, "Hey, Walmart wins the war," I think was I don't know if it was called that, or maybe it's called something else, but can you imagine if Walmart or Home Depot went over to Iraq and and the Iraqis looked around like, "Oh, man, this is very nice. I can go to get my glasses fixed and right. and the kids didn't knew that the a soccer ball wasn't the only toy in the free world and they could Stop in the Halal McDonald's on their way out and enjoy a Halal Quarter Pounder. Oh, yeah,
1: Um, a McFlaffle or something. Yeah, a
0: McFlaffle. Can you imagine Walmart or Home Depot really putting some skin in the game and saying, you know what, we're going to risk our bottom line. To kind of show them some of the good stuff of Western culture. Because there's nothing, I don't know, maybe you have listeners that think Walmart's evil. I don't think there's, is there any, could there anything evil be about Walmart?
1: I couldn't live without Big Box Retailer being a dad and a guy that lives in, you know, a cul-de-sac in the suburbs. I, you know, I, yeah. need, I I need it. I need it to do my lawn. I need it to fill my fridge. I need it to feed my kids. I mean, But
0: we take that for granted in America, where... You know, we have all these things. You can literally, like, I could see a 7 Eleven, like, out of the studio here. And no, <laughs> yeah. I could go over there right now and get gas within five minutes, not wait in line for an hour. I could get probably some of those, like, 3D vision goggles for my iPhone um, and watch a Netflix video. I could get some smokes. I could get some uh, Rippets, coffee. It, you know, it, right. It's, we just take all this for granted. That is not present in Iraq, even to this day. Even to this day. Mm. Yeah. You know, no ATMs. Wow! No ATMs. Well, fourteen years later, no ATMs. Still hauling truckloads of money from bank to bank. Mm. Imagine not having direct deposit.
1: No, I, you know, it, and you're right. As I read the book, as I look at what I just absorbed, and 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 I hear you talk about the Iraq and your vision for it that could be. I wish more authors like you had your stories told in movies. I wish more uh, service members like uh, you. Uh, I think of Navy SEAL Dan Crenshaw down in Texas running for Congress. I think of uh, representatives that are already under the dome in the hill like mm-hmm. Tom Cotton and some of the other guys that you know have served in combat areas. I hope that your bloodline infects and gets into the mainstream, gets into the blood of all of American leadership because there's a lot to take away from your experiences and certainly so many lessons to be learned from cover to cover in this book that are just so real, so touching, and not just uh, not just about war and bullets, but they're about people. But it's especially hip to hear your take on the global reality that we live in. Yeah. Well, um, we're lucky, too, we as it.
0: we sit here in D.C., too. You know, we've got so much going on around our current administration, and he's surrounding himself. So this is kind of a paradigm shift. You know, we got guys like Mattis and Kelly and Dumford and Zinke and, uh, uh, you know, Pompeo. Now, uh, all yeah. great military leaders, and I think... You know what I loved about this? And I was talking about this on some other program as well, because I don't normally talk politics because it's just not my thing. It's so divisive. But when I was watching Mike Pompeo during the confirmation before it hits, like he's he's grilling these people. Every senator and every congressman is like trying to get him. And he's just like bah, 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 free <laughs> and He's ironing these people out and doesn't even break a sweat. It's because this guy has been trained his whole life to deal with friction. Friction. And he's walking through that door and he's like, before he even turns the handle, he understands there's going to be at least five, six, seven points of friction throughout the next process. So before he even opens the door, he knows what he's walking into because he's experienced. He knows what's going on. So all these great military leaders like Mattis, who's completely unflappable, Dunford, completely unflappable right. uh they just it just makes me proud so I was sitting there's like yes finally and this doesn't mean that we're going to surround president trump with a bunch of former military leaders and their warmongers absolutely the opposite and i think you can understand this is yeah we don't want our kids to have to experience what we saw i would never think that And and all these great leaders that we have now i think they're just common sense guys right yeah, just, and it just makes li- me happy. And
1: they've lived through the stories you documented in Echo and Ramadi. On the lighter side of life here, and uh, just capture your thoughts on... Uh the marine that developed the theory of the wag bag cycle of life i thought that was one of the <laughs> coolest moments because and i'll just set it up for you if you can imagine you're working in these bombed out buildings in this combat zone that is uh, ramadi and uh, there's there's all you know constant firefights when there's downtime which happened quite frequently i mean on the yeah. daily the sun would come up and you guys would rest and then the fighting would happen again at night but when there was downtime you guys are just a bunch of Marines sitting around busting each other's balls in in a bombed-out building. Yep. And duty calls, and I mean duty calls. Like you, you know, you gotta go to the bathroom. And there was this um, <laughs> wag bag. What's wag short for? It's uh, waste, uh, waste
0: alleviating and gelling. WAG, W A G. So it's an acronym. You know, in the military, we got to have acronyms for everything. So. It's a
1: bag of cat litter, you crap, basically. In, basically. Yeah. And then you could go dispose of that, and then that would get burned. Yeah. But this one Marine developed this uh, unsavory, to say mm. the least, uh, theory called the WAG Bag Cycle of Life. Go ahead, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, not only can you, you, you have to do number two in the bag, but you can't do number one in the bag. So you have, that's a, Significant emotional event, you know. Just going to the bathroom, especially with all the gear on, you know, all that body armor. So uh, it, it wasn't until several years after, and it was it was told me by by um, Calvin Spencer and Nick Velez that we were sitting at my ranch in Southern California, and they were, he was telling me the wagbag cycle of life is like, first of all. You're jammed up in this house, like there's a, you know, we had a couple platoons in one house, a couple platoons in another house, and these firm bases. You, you gotta, everyone knows you're like, hey, you gotta, you gotta go to the bathroom. You go in, take care of business. You got to take care of your bag and tie it up. It's, you know, it's not that most Americans are like, oh, that's gross, but we see moms changing poopy diapers all the time, right? I'm a dad. So, I've changed two yeah. this week. So you're changing your own poopy diapers basically So, but you got to carry it out and then he says yes sir." then we'd have to do like the wag bag walk of shame so you're walking past all the other marines with your own you know bag and then you got to go outside and expose yourself and throw it into the pit where they burned all of the human feces and you know then the bag burns and then you know it goes, turns into ash, and the wind blows. So he didn't really figure out this whole cycle until one day, Spence is coming back from patrol. He's starving. and he's sitting down, and uh, he opens his his uh, his MRE. You know his his chow, like it's a can of SpaghettiOs, basically in a yeah. bag. And he's eating it, and all of a sudden he's like, he looks down, and he sees this stuff like sprinkling on top of it. And he, he's like, what is this? So he retraces the step back to the whole bag cycle life. He's like. Take a dump, wag bag, walk of shame, throw it into the fire, bag burns, ashes rise, ashes fall, and he's sitting there eating, and it's the ashes like, you know, sprinkling onto his food. And, you know, it just dawns on him. Calvin later went on to Le Cordon Bleu and became a chef, ironically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was an amazing guy, an entrepreneur, and uh, started Bastards American Canteen with my good friend and one of my junior Marines, Nick Falez, who's also the president of Save the Brave. And, uh, you know, as we get close to Memorial Day, you know, I I memorialize all the Marines in the book, but um, sadly there's one name in there and that's Calvin Spencer. And I'd like to dedicate this show to him personally uh, because uh, we lost Calvin last month to a tragic motorcycle accident and uh, just uh, really hit us hard. Tough for everybody, Uh, you know, 30 30 years old and uh, just in the prime. But, uh, you know, That story is uh, (laughs) comical as it is. That's Spencer. And, you know, he was this, you know, and again, another one of those larger-than-life characters who, you know, he'll be missed, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad there's a little piece of him that lives on forever. No doubt, and I, in fact, I,
1: I will be thinking of that story forever. Uh, I I want to make my way to Southern California, go to the restaurant, find the uh, you know find those magnificent bastards, and yeah. uh, in his honor, I want to bring that up to the chef and say, you know, if you could make sure there's a little ash on mine. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to know a marine is to know that they are just ball busting.
0: To the end, all the I guys mean, in the military. Gonna, there's so many, you know. There's so many people in our nation's military. This great cross section is demographics, and you know this because you're one of them. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I can only imagine having you my company. Um, major <laughs> discipline problem. Uh, Seriously. Yeah. Hey, sir. Why are we doing this? Like <laughs> Briggs, get back in line. <laughs> like, yes, sir. Roger that. But, sir, shut up, Briggs. <laughs> sir, this does appear to be a little <laughs> up. I mean, sir, this looks really <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> shut up, Briggs. <laughs> Get, get back to work Briggs but uh, there's so many characters and um, you know you find that over the course of your career and through age and wisdom and you know I found that out early on too is that you do have these great people they're not a bunch of lockstep soldiers or sailors and marines right. that just you know any American that thinks you join the military you' just marching around with a rifle in your shoulder like up, two three <laughs> four that is not what happens no it is our ranks are filled with these great Americans who raise their hand and the, but they're artisans and they are musicians and they are poets and they're disc jockeys, yeah, and yeah. sometimes they're writers. And it's, you know, understanding that you've got electricians and all these great, you know, people and uh, being able to leverage that talent and know that it's out there. It's not just a cookie cutter stamped sailor or a Marine or a soldier to really know how to understand your people. That's That's kind of where the science becomes art and vice versa, you know, to really understand those people and put those talents to work was, again, not exclusive to me. I'm sure there's others that have done it, but I, I realized that and, uh, Maybe that's because I was one of those people kind of left-brained and sure, sure. not conventional um <laughs> gotten more than my share of trouble, you know, throughout life and even in the Marine Corps, you know. Yeah, I was yeah. a, no choir boy, never professed that.
1: Well, I think that's what makes the book so cool to read cuz you managed to weave all that into a biographical experience about a war and uh, you know, several episodes that are just, you know, so so impactful that will literally change these young guys' lives forever. And as we wind down to the end, now everybody comes home, And sadly not everybody comes home And we honor them And then life moves on And this is where I really found The deepest connection to you as the author Was at the very end When we are unpacking all that we've learned From these episodes Mm -hmm. And come to find out that now we're starting to booze A little and now we're starting to you know, our demons—these things that we've witnessed—are now working within us in a very negative way sometimes. And we're we're drinking, we're boozing, we're drugging, we're hanging out late, we're being a little rowdy. Um, you wrecked your damn jeep, yeah, and you were drunk.
0: Yeah, not not and, a not a high point uh, whatsoever. And yeah, you know, I don't think I have wrote the word demons. I don't know why I steered away from that. I don't. Uh, I I just don't feel like they're they're demons. I think. The, the analogy that I've been using, um, and there's another great one that I shared about Adam Walker, you know, the coffee mug um, about the effects of post-traumatic stress mm. and how it's, he calls it this post-combat residue where it's, you know, it's in that cup, but you, you, you'll you never get rid of it. But the cup's still good. It still serves its intended purpose. But to, you know, to, to process all of those pieces of trauma, uh, even as a 35-year-old captain at the time and, you know, having done multiple deployments, multiple combat tours, you know, I was dealing with that at a very um, uh, different perspective because you know, sure. I was 35, but I, it never really dawned on me how these young guys had to process that. And so when you go through all of that trauma and experience, I, I, I use this analogy, like they're little tiny messes and it's like jam, you know, you, you just put it in a jar, you, you put the lid on it um, and you have to pack it away and like put it in the, put it in the pantry and shut the door and every time you experience another piece of trauma you're like seal it up pantry but you know whether you're still in combat or whether you leave the military you leave the battlefield all that trauma is still there right man if the ground shakes a little bit which sometimes it does in everybody's life and one of those jars just kind of falls, it's going to shatter and that mess is going to seep out or into the crack of the door and you got to go to the door and unlock it open the door And you got to deal with that mess. Mm. And the way we do that, unfortunately sometimes is through drinking too much, making bad decisions. Um, But we're also very fortunate to have this amazing network of people that help us clean up that mess. And if there's one story and one lesson that comes through is like the way I've been able to deal with that is one, stay connected, continue to have a purpose and, and, That is to help veterans and continue to lead um, anyone who asks and know that you may have the dustpan and Jake may have the broom and I got the mop and we're going to clean up this mess together. Mm. And it's, it's still a team, you know, because those messes were created through our shared experiences and we can't unsee any of the things we did. We can't unhear any of the, the things we heard, but if, if that jar breaks, You know, any veteran that's listening, that's dealing with their own stuff, they can always get a hold of me. I mean, literally. Uh, And trust me, a lot of people like to put up these filters and barriers like, I don't want to deal with the general public. And there are some screwballs out there. I mean, like, you get get your share of that. But you know what you also get your share of? Is these amazing stories of people asking for help. And those are the ones that you have to not only throw the rope into and, and pull them aboard, to save them, but sometimes they're so destined that they're going to sink into that cold water. You know what I tell people that want to volunteer and serve and help vets? Jump in, jump in, man. Yeah, that's what it takes sometimes because they don't even know they need saving. Mm. And when you're dealing with all that trauma, man, that is that is something you got to do. But th- there's also the sad fact that you you just can't help some. Some don't want help, and you can't see it coming. And, right, right. and we've lost more than our share of guys to. To the effects of suicide. And, um, you know, we lost another one in, in January this year. And uh, it, the numbers keep rising. And it's not some s- silly push up challenge on Facebook. You know, it's these are real people, man. These are our brothers, yeah. guys we served with, their sons and daughters. I mean, they're my friends um, and they're my Marines. And we're here for them.
1: And you are there for them uh, as soon as the big war stories end. And everybody comes home. There were a couple stories there about guys that sadly took their own life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, God bless. You know, where his story ends is still the current reality for a lot of guys out there. And you were able to bring even their current reality into this book. And there's a whole group of people out there that have similar shared experiences to so much that you've actually got an organization now that's doing something about
0: that. I don't. I don't think I could have written this, and that's why it was so important to share that story of of Simon Litke, who is one of our squad leaders, and, and and again making that phone call to to his mom and dad to ask them permission to tell the story. I'm telling you, I picked up the phone probably. 20 30 times I'm like Bob Nikki are you sure you're cool with me telling this story he's like it and again they lose so much yet they're this beacon of hope and they, they carry this torch of brightness right. so it's not a story of sadness they're not like oh we lost our son and you know they're like tell our story let's save more people so this never happens again right and they're such amazing people Bob and Nikki and uh, their their whole family and when we when we've lost other Marines, sadly, uh, you know, uh, Christiansky and Calvin Spencer, guess who shows up and flies all the way across country? The Lickies. Yeah. Because they're part of our family, and we are so lucky that we have these solid Americans that can lose so much and then just continue to love us so much. I mean, it's you want to talk about the power of human connection, and um, being able to share that is. They they hadn't even read the book, um, and I read before we launched the book. Um, we were in, you know, it's tragic, but we were in DC burying, you know, one of our one of our Marines that we lost to suicide before the book launched, and uh, I had a copy, and I said I want to read the chapter about Simon to you, and I read it to him and in, in the hotel room, and yeah, it was it was tough to get through, but sure, you know. Hey, ironically, Bob will love this too because I like throwing him under the bus. You know, Bob's crying his eyes out, and Nikki, she's a rock. You know, she's like <laughs> Bob's such a crier. Like, throw him some Kleenex, Scott. And you know, but it's a story of brightness, and and despite the how you view it, is you know from you know these are sad stories, but they're real stories, right? And when you don't write about that, I think you do a disservice to those that sacrifice so much. Because I don't care if if we lost Simon in a firefight. Uh, in central Ramadi, that guy was still fighting his own battles, you know, long after he left um, and, and having to, you know, do and see some of the things he did both in 04 and 06 in Ramadi. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and sadly, there's no there's no granite wall here in D.C. or any other city that memorializes the almost 40 or 50,000 vets we've lost to suicide. Right. And, and through Save the Brave, we're, we're just trying to help them uh, connect and, you know, provide a safe environment for these guys that are such a small segment that can really share what they went through. And, you know, that's why I'm dedicated to it. And that's why, you know, in the back jacket of the cover, Save the Brave logo is there because a portion of the proceeds go to help veterans with post-traumatic stress. And so you get a great story and you're helping vets, you know, so it's, you know, and you and, can't and, lose.
1: And and I liked how you framed the story in a perfect way to wrap Um in what's been an incredible hour, and I thank you for going this long with me and talking about this to it. such great extremes, because it's been so revealing. And the Save the Brave, the nonprofit organization, can be found where?
0: At SaveTheBrave.org.
1: The book itself is the power of human connection. Your words, and it's yep. so accurate. But I think when this becomes a movie, and people see it, people will understand how important it is to have told these stories, whether or not it's a happy ending and the guy's still alive, you know, just having fun down there in Louisiana or San Diego running a restaurant, or whether it's one of our brothers that we lost, be it in combat or or to suicide. Having their story told is the honor and the brightness and the light that we need to shine because forever they will be part of our lives. They'll be up here in the mental Rolodex. And every time we recall it, it should put a smile on our face, a warmth in our heart, and to know that these stories were worth telling total yeah. pleasure scott hey thanks so James. damn good to meet you
0: man yeah it's my pleasure to be on the program and if you want to see some pictures of the marines you can go to my website at echo and Ramadi.com, and you can actually see some of the characters in the book after you read it and you can buy it on amazon uh always available on amazon barnes and noble costco carries it but uh, go to amazon get a copy and uh you know memorial day is coming up uh, you know armed forces day is coming up i get so many copies in the mail up from other veterans saying, "Hey, will you sign this for this veteran? He's a friend of mine. I, I bought this copy, and uh, can you sign it to him?" And I, I usually, I'll come home from a trip like this. and will be like a stack of books on my table. It is the best part of the job. It's a pleasure being here. I can't wait to do something else with you in the future. And yeah, man, great it's... team here. Thanks to uh, Intercom, Intercom Radio yes. for having me on. And uh, to anyone in DC, you know, I, I, I love this town. And uh, my publisher's here in. in in town as well regnery so uh, very, very cool. fortunate yeah. well
1: when the mics turn off here i got some more stories that are totally r-rated and totally comical about my silly experience in the navy and uh, you know maybe we can make a comedy the next book <laughs> echo and ramadi it's the story of personal connection and the first-hand story of u.s marines in iraq's deadliest city scott husing hoorah brother great book hey thanks brother